Scripture, as Dave said, is the Word of God, confirmed by God, the authentic Scriptures that we believe. Well, there are those that don't believe that. So if that's the case, canonization of Scripture, number one, who determines how old it is? Number two, who is the one creating doubt? And there's a third part of it. Who determines whether it's authentic or not? Who determines whether it's real? I mean, as Christians, shouldn't we care whether the Bible we're reading is real or not? Shouldn't we? Well, I can tell you here, of course it is. We know that unequivocally. But the question is, what happens if somebody comes to you and starts pounding on you and giving you an educational lecture from some course or some book they've written and you have nothing to say to them? I think this is something that's very problematic today and I think that the colleges are winning this war because nobody stands up and gives the truth and they don't talk about it. Creating doubt. Well, there are a number of doubts that are raised about the authorship of the New Testament books. This is a big factor. We assume that the names attached to these books are from the authors that we read. Scholars now ask now, do you know John wrote John? Do you know that Mark wrote Mark? Then the challenge goes deeper than asking who the authors are. They now suggest they are forgeries. And there are books out there that say that. They're saying, was Ephesians really written by Paul? And they say that it's something... That it's, that it's someone else pretending to be Paul or Peter. And there's a book out there that confirms that by a man named Bart Ehrman. He wrote a book. He was a professor of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Speaking of large, he's a large critic of Scripture, and his book is called Forged, Written in the Name of God. And he is saying that this book was forged, it's contradictory, and it's not what it says it is. So, why do we believe the Gospels are forged? Why would they believe, I'm, I'm sorry, why would they believe the Gospels are forged and not authentic authorship? Because there's a lack of confidence in the authenticity of Scripture. There's a real lack of confidence. Lisey. That's right. That's right. That's excellent. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a very good point. Here's a big question. How many of you all, of course, remember sitting in some, some form of classroom? I don't care if it was high school, college, or some kind of training course for your vocation. How many of you remember having some kind of someone teaching you, and you're in a classroom setting, and you're sitting in chairs, you're writing notes, you're trying to learn, and you have somebody teaching you? How many, does, does anybody remember doing that? Okay. How many of you sat there and tried to interrupt your professor or teacher, whoever, and tried to correct him and tell him what he was teaching was wrong and sat there and then you tried to teach the class. You ever tried doing that? Or just even minorly correcting? You'd wind up probably getting something thrown at you, right? I mean, in my day, going to Christian school back in the 70s and the 80s, you would have gotten something thrown at you, <laughs> physically. 
Well, my question is, why is God our ultimate scholar, professor, perfect with a perfect and errant word, and why, are, why is people trying to teach him and trying to turn him into something that he's not and trying to tell him he's wrong? Got to have a lot of guts to do something like that, to tell God that he's wrong. And that's what they're doing by changing this. There's, there, there is, the second application is creating doubt. And here is where it comes. You want to know where this really started hitting hard? The discovery of more apocryphal books. Have you ever heard that? The word apocryphal? Does anybody know what the word apocryphal means? Not quite, but they believe, they are, they're saying that it was written by the apostles. They're saying that the books outside of what Scripture is were written by the apostles. That's actually a pretty good meaning because they do say that the Gospel of Thomas was written by Thomas, and that's not even proven. They said they found, hand, they found actually manuscripts, and I'm going to talk about where in a minute, and that that should be in Scripture. Apocryphal books mean hidden books. They're hidden. They were hidden... They're not understood by most people, so it takes some kind of a scholar to make people understand what is so hidden about them or unhidden. So here's what we have. There's a discovery of more apocryphal books, hidden books, that look like New Testament books but never made it into Scripture. They have the Gospel of Thomas, like we talked about, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, and they continue to find these, and it never stops. How many times have you seen on the internet some new writing that's come that's supposed to be for Scripture or some new artifact that has writings and all on it? That happens over and over and over again. But here's something that I found that's very interesting. In the last hundred years in Egypt, you can look this up, right now there is an archaeological site in Egypt. It's called Oxyrhynchus. Anybody ever heard of that? It's called Oxyrhynchus. It's a hundred-year it's been a hundred-year archaeological dig. It's basically a garbage dump of old manuscripts. Oxyrhynchus is an extensive archaeological site near the modern day of El Banasa in the Almenya government of Egypt. It is located approximately 160 kilometers southwest of the city of Cairo on the left bank of Bar Yusuf, a branch of the Nile that now terminates in the Fayyum Oasis. The ruins of Oxyrhynchus were discovered and identified by Vivian Denon, one of the French scholars who accompanied Napoleon Bonaparte on his Egyptian campaign from 1799 to 1802. The first excavations were undertaken in 1987 by Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt, two Englishmen who traveled to the site when they heard the news of a large number of papyri found there. Their, ex their excavations unearthed many thousands of papyri mostly written in Greek and dated in the Roman period, and the discoveries they made are studied to this day by the Egypt Exploration Society, with a substantial number of items now housed in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. After the initial excavations, Oxyrhynchus attracted several Italian and English missions up to the 1930s, when official efforts were interrupted for a period of 50 years. Unfortunately, activity did not stop during this time. Numerous looters and treasure hunters ransacked the site, and many antiquities unearthed in those years have since been identified in private collections and public museums. Today, the museum, thought to house the most antiquities from Oxyrhynchus, is the National Museum of Antiquities in Leiden in the Netherlands. Lost books here, when they get found, 
Why not these books, and why, do we, and why are they wanting to incorporate these in the Bible? This is the question. They've used this as an excuse to manipulate Scripture, saying they have found lost manuscripts that go all the way back to the days of Jesus. They say that they found the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas, remember, doubting Thomas, the one that said to the Lord, the Lord finally, the Lord shows him the holes in his hands, he is my Lord and my God. They're saying the Gospel of Thomas, but when it is written, and when people read it, Thomas speaks about how you can have your own salvation, that you don't need Jesus. And then this Gospel of Mary actually is supposed to be a complete written work of Mary and all of her all of her experiences with Jesus, basically showing that she's as much of a deity as Jesus as Jesus is. This is another writing that's been found where it's, been, it's being taught in schools and saying it should be part of the Bible. Then there's another one called the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. That's another one that was found. And now... A handful of Christian scholars, one like this Dr. Michael Kruger, who's doing a really good job, he's trying to find the authenticity of these, and he has basically shown that they're forgeries. They're the forgeries. The gospel of Jesus' wife, saying that Jesus had a wife here on this earth, and that you know it's being taught. You've heard of it. You've heard of things like that. You've heard it. I think the Mormons teach that. And there's these... Now, now you go back 100 years... And you can now say that these writings, this papyrus, goes all the way back to the ancient Egyptian writings, and basically it's a big landfill of manuscripts. They're saying it all, in certain forms, should be part of Scripture. So what happens when you can start saying that? You can start saying that the Scripture that we have is not authentic. It's not the way that it should be. That's what they're saying. And I think that's extremely dangerous. Here's another, here, here's another very important part, another application. Do we have a fixed, final, closed list of a collection of books in our Scripture? Is it closed, or is it still open to be modified? Well, if you read some of the new versions of Scripture, going back at least 45 years, you would think that there is a lot of room for improvement in the Scriptures that we love and hold so dear as our standard. That's how they, the scholars here in these theological seminaries have made it look like Scripture is not done yet. That's what they say. Well, we know that it is. We know that it is finished. We know that we do have fixed, final, closed list. You go to question and answer three in Westminster's Confession of Faith, and if you don't have one, get one. What is the Word of God? What is the Word of God? And look at the answer. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience, and it cannot be changed. Let's read a couple verses. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God. Can someone look up 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? And then someone look up 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So someone read 2 Timothy 3.16 first. You're going to recognize this verse, but I think it's very important. We always remind ourselves of it, of course. Second Timothy 3.16. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. 
talked Wednesday night about how the Jewish council was questioning Jesus of his doctrine. In John chapter 18, verses 19 to 21, he asked him of his doctrine. He said, I ever spoke in the synagogues. I spoke in the temple. I spoke openly to the world, and I spoke in the synagogue and the temple where the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. That right there is proof that Christ opened up to us what is in Scripture, what his ministry was, and that it is of God. That in and of itself. And there are endless, marvelous proofs in Scripture that we know that our Bible is the real Bible. That is a set of final, fixed, closed list of books that are confirmed by God. And this time, this is the list of books are not to be altered, and the timing on it is of the Lord and not man. I don't think anybody can go back and say, this is exactly when this was written. This is exactly when this was We know that our scriptures are not even in chronological order, but that's of the Lord. He has them exactly the way he wants to learn them. And what the problem is, there's so many people complaining about the chronological order, but if you talk to them, they don't even read scripture. They talk about the chronological order, they talk about what should be in there, what should not be in there, but they can't even tell you what is in there. I think that's a real problem. And I think that it's very important for us to be in there so that we have that answer. It's prof profitable for doctrine and reproof. Matthew had his hand up and then Greg. Good, Matt. Right. Right, it's what's expedient and what's convenient. Greg, go ahead. Right. You can't dispute that fact. And also, the Bible is a historical document that uh, secular historians can't refute the accuracy of its historical content, like the Book of Kings or whatever. Right. That's right, and that's a great answer because that's important to incorporate the fact of the authenticity and the track record of the fulfillment of the prophecies. They're perfectly fulfilled, all of them. Any, everything God ever said, even to this day, is being perfectly fulfilled. Right. That's right. What's coming, what, what's coming, and the book of Revelations really points us in that direction. I've been reading the book of Micah. Minor prophets are good to just connect with all that, too. Charlie. Well, this was an archaeological dig in Egypt, and it's still going. Right. Oh, so you're saying they destroyed the evidence? That's that's a good that's a good possibility. But people, but the, the sad thing is, is people fall for hook, line, and sinker. They do believe it. They believe Scripture is not is not the holy inerrant Word of God. It's not completed, or it has too much in it. Once again, we were talking the other night, we were talking here about there's, there was a pastor, uh, Matthew and I know him, he was one of his instructors, 
in Taekwondo, and he came out and he said that there are 2,000 verses in the Bible that shouldn't be there. And the question I asked his wife, I, I, I thought I had talked to him, it was actually his wife, and she was a pre precious girl and very good to talk to. I said, which ones? Which ones? Can you quote them? If you think that there's 2,000 verses that need to come out of Scripture, you better know what they are. I think that's a good question. Well, right. Right. That's exactly right. And what they want to do is they want to take Scripture and make it one of the books on the shelf. Why? Why do they want to do that? Right. That's right. They don't want a standard where there's an abs then there's an absolute God that can destroy them for disobeying Him. That's exactly what they want. Either that or like facing the giants or one of those kind of movies. They want something that's convenient and it feels good. They want something that's prosperous. They don't want to be told about their sin, but they want everything. That's why if you go back to the historical references of Jesus, you're going to get a high percentage of scholars saying that he was a good teacher. They're not going to call him the Son of God or deity. Be right. That's right. Right. And if you believe it's truth, you need to spend the rest of your life thanking the Lord that you do. Because of those that don't. We live in an age of relativism. Everything's relative. Anything goes to the point where now it's gotten so bad that there's really an argument on whether we should take a baby and murder it 28 days after it's out of the mother's womb. There are people that literally believe. And there you got this illegitimate guy in the White House now. He wants to codify. He wants to go against go against the, the Supreme Court ruling and bring it back. That's how bad it's gotten. And the wicked things that God hates are now up for discussion. They're now up for biblical interpretation. We're now, because of metaphysics, the Lord has written a story on two directions of a baby. The baby can either come into the world or it can be aborted. But either way, the baby's going to be okay. And that's what they're saying. And that comes from Pastor Catherine McElvoy, of she's a pastor of some big church and she's saying because of the study of metaphysics going back to Greek, Greek philosophy that the Lord doesn't mind either way whether a baby's aborted or not. That there are reasons to do it. And now it's amazing in the last week I've seen all these ads coming out on how these women's had, had abortions in order to save their bodies and that having the abortion kept them from dying. All this stuff's coming out. And you see where this is going. Well, many books have been written about these lost books. There's one called the Five Gospels, supposed to be that the Scripture is supposed to have five Gospels, and the fifth one being the Gospel of Thomas. Now, that one is the one they're really going after, or they call it the Forgotten Scriptures, rewritten to generate doubts about the real Jesus. There's a man named William Bauer, the earliest centuries of, of Christianity. He says, and this is, I think, what was the biggest confusing mess. This goes back to the manuscripts in Egypt. 
people saying, those manuscripts should have been in the Bible, those manuscripts should have been added, or, and ones here in the Bible should be taken away because they're not real. So now you've created a conflict, which is the greatest way to write a movie or write a novel. You create a conflict, you got people's attention now. Question God, and you got a lot of people's attention. So now all of a sudden, this man said that in the earliest centuries, the apostles, the disciples, the prophets of old were not educated enough. They did not have enough theological training to write the type of work that they wrote to call it scripture. And they say that Christianity was diverse. There was all time, types of different sects of Christianity. So you're getting writings from different parts. So there was never one cohesive fixed collection of books with one central motif in Christianity having God being the author and finisher of everything. There's all kinds of different ways of looking at it. Does that sound familiar? Why do you think now when you ride down the road, you will never, hardly ever see a Bible-believing church, but you'll see every other type of church out on the road, like Pastor Olson was talking about last week. You'll see Journey Church and Invigorate Church. I mean, some of the stupidest names for a church. I mean, you've got this parish here. You have the PCUSA here. And it's such a broad spectrum of different types of churches, people don't even know where to go. That's probably why they don't go. And that's based on this belief. Here's some of these books that they found were asking, who was Jesus? What is salvation? How do you get saved? This man, William Bauer, said that he said there was no Christianity, but there were Christianities with different writings, and there was never one standard. That canon was a big historical accident. Canonizing scripture was a big historical accident. They're saying this was an accident. Boy, can Satan create confusion, can he? Here's the problem with canon. Church must answer this. It must be coherent. We must have a gospel message. But, you know, Paul didn't leave a whole lot out. I want to go back to what Greg said. Greg said something very important. 25, he gave a percentage. What, 25% of prophecy? Well, that's important because if you want to study canonization of Scripture, you go to the New Testament. Who wrote the greater portion of, of New Testament writings? 60%. Over 60% of the New Testament is Paul. So you can go to one person, one, inspired by God, and get all the answers of everything that we talked about this morning and know in your heart that Scripture is real, that we do have a fixed number of texts and verses that are our standard. That's very important. But I want to read what Paul wrote about being confused. You know, that's very important. Can I ask someone to look up and read this? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. Read it carefully. And please, everyone listen carefully. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. There you go. Christ, 
This is the, thank you, Jacob. This is the face of Jesus Christ. And those that are doing the apocryphal writings and trying to take them, these hidden gospels and these hidden books, and trying to incorporate and say that our Bible is not complete, Paul says they're lost. He says it right here. He said, the gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Do we trust that? I think we should. So what, what is the New Testament canon? What are we looking for? I mean, behind the scenes, there's a raging debate about canon. Why does it matter? Whoever controls the terminology controls the debate. Whoever controls the terminology controls the debate. That means whoever controls the terminology of the conflict can control the debate of what Scripture really is. And what they're saying is, what many scholars are saying, no one knew that Scripture was of any effect until the 5th century. Why? Well, here's a big question. Now, we know the answer. But this is a big question. <laughs> Did the writers of the New Testament know they were writing Scripture? I think we've talked about this before. Did the writers of the New Testament know that they were writing Scripture? Now, we haven't been able to get into the confession a whole lot this morning. I promise you we will next week because this will really bring this together. But I want to look at a couple verses. I wanted to show you why you can depend on Paul. You can also depend on Peter. We're going to look at John here in a minute. Did they know what they were writing was Scripture? And that's the first question. The second question, if they didn't know who, what they were writing is Scripture, who gets to determine what Scripture is? Who gets to determine and who gets to interpret Scripture and say where it came from? Well, if they say it does not come from God, then it reverts to the church. Has anyone heard about that little problem of the Catholic Church hiding Scripture? And, that the, and it's, there were some men that were actually burned at the stake for trying to interpret Scripture and rewriting it, translating it so other people could understanding it, understand it? And is there maybe a reason why the Catholic polity didn't like that? Why they didn't like people having Scripture in their hands and reading it and learning it themselves? Well, my, maybe they might have exposed a few lies that the church was trying to, and to they were things that they were trying to hide. I think this, gives a, this should wake up our understanding of, of regarding this. Well, we see here Paul warns very specifically about being confused and letting Satan confuse us as to the truth. We, have, we do have fixed final closed list. We have books that are Scripture, authority. They are Scripture, and they are accepted by Bible-believing churches. Church did not close or open canon. Christ did. Christ is the church. When you hear in history that the churches are the ones that define canon, they're talking about a collection of people. They're not talking about God. That's very important for us to un understand then we also need to look at the ontological definition. Defining the, books that gave, defining the books that gave the church, not church interpretation. Do we believe that when Paul wrote Romans, it was not substantive until the church proclaimed it in the 5th century? The time frame would have to go all the way back to the 1st century at the end of 98 AD when the, Revelation, the book of Revelations was written. 
We believe as Christians that it was fully written when God finished it, not when the church defined when it was finished. Because if we trust the church, the church or the universal church, the Catholic church to define that, you're going to get a whole other answer. Well, to finish up this morning, we need to answer these questions. Did the writers of the New Testament know they were writing Scripture? Paul wrote well over half of the New Testament, and he confirms this. Let's read some verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Can someone look that up? Romans 1, 1 through 4. How does Paul open up the book of Romans, which many theologians call his magnum opus? They, they, they say it's his greatest writing. I think they're all great, but that's what they say. It says right there, he's declared to be the Son of God. Paul, by the instruction, the inspiration, the direction of Jesus Christ. So, can we confidently say, even in this little collection of verses, that Paul knew that he was writing Scripture? I think that that's a massive testimony and a massive witness in just the opening to the book of Romans. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? I'll tell you what, how about Matthew? Can you look those up? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Can you read those? And then, uh, Greg, could you look up Galatians chapter 1, verse 20? You can read that after he's finished. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, opening to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 4. Thank you. Look at the, the word. This is what we were talking about in Sunday school class last week, about how one of the catchphrases or the words that Paul used many times was comfort. Comfort and comfort. And here he says here, comforted us in our tribulation, that is Christ, that we may be able to comfort others by which we are comforted by the comfort of God. That is him confirming that he knew he was writing Scripture. Paul knew he was writing the inspired Word of God. And when getting back to what we've been talking about, there are those scholars out there saying that the New Testament writers did not know that they were writing Scripture. So later on, that had to be interpreted and that had to be defined by the universal church, which is wrong. Galatians 1.20, if you have that, Greg? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'd say right there, that's another one. He says, I'm writing these things before God. 
If he's writing them before God, he's being inspired and he says, I lie not. I wouldn't dare go there. I wouldn't dare lie about what God has me, has me working for him. Well, what about John the Beloved? What does he say? What can we learn from his writings, whether he thought that he knew he was writing Scripture or not? Here's a verse from John the Beloved concerning the inspiration of God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and I'll finish with these verses. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which he had from the beginning. Does that make sense? I think he's going back to Genesis, possibly, from the beginning. Okay, The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He's saying he's being written, he's writing by the direction of Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, and he's writing that this is not some new word that he's writing of, that he has no idea. He knows that this is Scripture, and he knows that he's been, he's been, this is inspired, and that these commandments and prophecies go all the way back to the beginning. I mean, this, this, there's countless infallible proofs of what we're talking about this morning, that Scripture is of God, it is inspired, it is not to be added to, and it's not to be taken away from. I'm trying to see those, these verses, but basically... Revelations 22.18 For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So I think we have a pretty good opening this week on... Canonization of Scripture. What is a canon? Is our Scripture what it's supposed to be? It is, is it the true Word of God? And the answer, of course, is yes. But what we're trying to define today is that there are many out there that are trying to debunk that and to show that Scripture is not authentic, that it's not the holy inerrant Word of God. That's the lie, and we need to be very careful with that. Okay, let's finish this morning. I'll ask uh, to Jacob, could you close us this morning? Thank you.